Welcome back to Season 3 of the Digital Orthopedics Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Stefano Bini. In this series of podcasts, we are highlighting the best presentations from the January 2020 San Francisco Digital Orthopedics Conference, otherwise known as DOCSF, presented in partnership with UCSF's Department of Orthopedic Surgery, and the November 2019 DOCSF Berlin Conference, presented in partnership with Frontiers Health. On this, episode 10 of season 3, we will be focusing on solving problems and executing strategies in the outpatient setting. The theme is managing patients in the best venue. That could mean in a virtual venue, at home, at a remote clinic, in the inner city, or in a smart device. And what will the advent of 5G and high-speed connectivity mean for delivery platforms? Let's take a deep dive in the next chapter of digital health delivery because caring for all patients in the most expensive hotels on the planet is not a solution we can afford. We will be hearing from Dr. Christopher Schlanger, the digital lead for population health at the Mercy Healthcare System, and Darren Sabo, the principal for emerging countries for Orange, the European communications company leading the charge in 5G. Dr. Daniel Kraft, the founder and chair of Exponential Medicine, will be moderating and you know he's going to do a great job. Let's join them all on the stage of DOCSF 2020 in San Francisco. I get the second privilege this morning of bringing up a man that I admire for a variety of reasons. Not only he's a physician, he's an inventor, he's a futurist, he is the founder of Exponential Medicine, He can present more material in three and a half minutes than I'll read in a year, and he's a delightful person, and I'm so happy to work with Daniel Kraft. (laughs) Good morning, everybody. Thank you, Vonda. Thank you, Stefana, for having me back. I don't have to talk about anything this morning. Uh, I'm actually helping lead off a session where we're going to be looking a bit at the execution and future of the outpatient world, as increasingly in this world of exponential technologies, internet of things, wearables to 5G, we have the opportunity to connect the dots and not just talk about shiny objects, but put them together in ways that can really shift care to care anywhere as it increasingly becomes uh, virtualized and outside of the four walls of the the clinic, the ICU, the OR, to increasingly the home and our bodies. So it's a really interesting time now. We're seeing, again, the convergence of technology to to create complete solutions. And the theme of, of this is now, you know, execution is everything. It's great to have some of these potentials, but how do we actually make it work, particularly in the constraints of different systems, uh, different incentives, many of which are misaligned. So I'm going to cut to the chase. We've got two great key speakers for this, and we're going to have a discussion and back and forth with everybody here. And we're going to start with uh, Chris, uh, Dr. Chris Schlanger, who comes from Mercy, where he heads up a lot of their virtual care and their uh, work on population health. I've had a chance to visit their center out at Mercy. They're doing some really incredible ground banking work, which has really inspired and helped many other systems uh, move into the space. So Chris is going to uh, share some of uh, his work at how we can make that happen in the real world and the virtual world at scale. So Chris. Morning, everybody. I took this picture just a few miles away from one of our hospitals. It's kind of funny how quickly the scenery changes there. But I wanted to start with this because this is where we do business. It's not in our hospitals. You know, it's not in our offices. This is where the, the magic happens, if you will. I mean, to be sure, we have plenty of suburban and, and even urban patient populations. But you know, our world is older and sicker. 
You know, and the, the half joke is, although I'm actually referring to our patient populations, it's as much our healthcare system finances as anything. And I have to say that because it explains the position where, that we're in and why we're doing what we're doing because we're a healthcare system. You know, we have always had responsibility for all of our patients and we can't meet that responsibility and deliver the care we have if we're broke. The care that we deliver, you know, the systems that we design and build have to explain to the patients, you know, their, their reasons for being and have to address the why and address our needs as well. So because of who we are, where we're coming from and where we're headed, which by the way is straight into a heavily risk-based world, we've decided to tackle some of the highest need and uh, really the hardest patients that are out there. So I want to tell you a quick story here. We have to start with a why to understand what we do. And we're going to get into how we do that and what we have to do for that to work. And then we'll finish up with a little bit about this, some of what we're spending a little extra bandwidth talking about. So like I was mentioning, this person is sick. There's a person in his home with a lot going on. Sickness is really expensive. But interestingly, if you think about it, this is where the dollars actually start to get spent. Not actually, but if you trace the root cause of a lot of the expenses, they're starting right here, not in the office, not in the hospital. Interestingly, though, these conditions, you know, the problems that this person is dealing with are the ones that are amenable to coordinated care and attention. I mean, really, a lot of this person's problems are an attention problem. You know, we haven't been able to give him the type of attention and the amount of attention that he and the rest of his peers need. But if we could, and we can now, we're going to start to see some really interesting results. And this is where we start to deliver the healthcare system that we always talk about. But a couple problems here. Number one, he doesn't necessarily know or realize when he's starting to get sick. And when he finally realizes that, he may not call us. You know, and that's a problem. And I'll say this again. This is when and where healthcare decisions actually get made. Not so much in the office. You know, not so much in the hospital. You know, the dice have already been rolled at that point. This is where we can get it. We have to be here where and when these decisions are getting made. You know, we have to be right there with them. You know, and that it goes both for the routine, everyday decisions. What he has for dinner. Does he get up and go exercise or not? Does he take his medications? But also in the moments of crisis. So we built a system to address him and all of his peers. And the system really relies on a foundation of small care teams headed by an advanced practitioner with a nurse and a navigator, and they're overseen by physicians. Um, they're supplemented by a variety of ancillary providers. We have physical therapists, like up there. Uh, we have dietitians, we have mental health counselors, chaplains, really whatever the patients need. We provide the patients with a, a, a kit, essentially sensors, to help amplify or supercharge our ability to pay attention. This could be bed sensors, pulse oximeters, Bluetooth connected, blood pressure cuffs, um, or even getting into some other advanced things. But really, whatever makes sense for the patient's particular condition and physiology. And by doing this, in a sense, we've created a, a wraparound, um, almost concierge-level care uh, for some of these patients. And I don't use the term concierge lightly, because if you think about what a concierge service is, it's you can call that person whenever for whatever. And that's what we're providing for these patients. And I'll, I'll get to that here in just a second. But we've built this system. We've designed all these great things. We've answered our why 
but we're bringing it to the front door of these patients, but they have to bring it into their lives. You know, and that, that's not a trite statement. I mean, we are asking to barge into their everyday life for a house guest that is not going to leave, you know, and they have to decide to say yes. And that's not always easy. I mean, nice looking house. Most of our patients don't live in a house that's probably as nice as this on the inside. Some of them are quite literally embarrassed if we were to get them on video for a, a basically a, a Skype call. They're embarrassed of what their house looks like. We have to think about that. You know, but more often and, and far more overreaching is that why? Why would they deal with this every day? You know, nobody wants to be reminded that they're sick. It's bad enough that they have to go to the doctor when they need to go to the doctor. But man, now we're doing it every day. We have to answer their why in addition to our own why. I mean, this is a huge design challenge that we have to solve. You know, we're doing our best, you know, because fundamentally, if we don't address the human needs, the medicine and the technology cannot and will not work. And we have seen that in, in limited settings. Sometimes the human aspects are as much the problem as anything. Sometimes it isn't even really a medicine problem. And ultimately, though, the patients, they can say no. This is a new system. You know, they can always just do it the old way, the routine way. So if we want this to get accepted, we have to do it the way they want it, when they want it. So talk a little bit about how we do. And I'm going to tell you three secrets as part of this. The relationship, the trust, and a willingness to do things differently. And those terms are thrown around so casually, so often, they are like completely diluted of meaning here, but they're hiding in open sight. So I'm going to say them again. The relationship, the trust, and the willingness to do things differently. I'll tell you how not to start a relationship. Give this lady a bunch of homework. Here's a bunch of devices. Figure out how to manage them. Bluetooth syncing. Here's a list of homework. Do these things. Read this material. You know, we're putting her back in school. Use these devices for purposes that you don't even understand. You know, you don't you realize what benefit you're getting from that. That is not a relationship. On the other hand, you know, we could say that we have to give her something that she wants. Sometimes that is the relationship. It could be as simple as social isolation. A lot of older people don't have a number of people in their lives. You know, if we're going to do anything, if we're going to get them to do things that they wouldn't otherwise understand or at least internalize the value of, we have to make them understand that we care. So we don't only care about what we care about. We care about what she cares about. Maybe it's the grandkids. Maybe it's the dog. I don't know. And that's not a trite statement. You know, you can't do that if you're seeing a patient like this once every couple months in the office. You know, we'll ask the patients about what their weekend plans are. And then a couple of days later, we'll ask them how the weekend went. That's a kind of relationship that is necessary if we're expecting some of these more advanced and more cutting edge approaches to medicine to work. We have to be able to do that. I mean, we are truly bringing the medicine and the healthcare into their lives in a way that just cannot happen in an office. Healthcare is something that happens somewhere else. Now it is quite literally happening in their kitchen, like this lady here. The trust, it's probably just a natural follow-on to this. We're not trying to sell ourselves and you know how smart we are. Nah. It's more of they can rely on us. We are dependable. They know that they can call us whenever they want for whatever they need, and we're going to answer on the first or the second ring. You know, I don't know if we'll be able to solve their problem always, 
but they know that we are truly in it for them. There's no voicemail. There's no messages dropped. We have their backs all the time. And this is something that just takes time. You know, you can't send a bunch of stuff to their house and say, no, great, we have a trusting relationship. You know, we have to build this and we have to earn this. And everybody knows how quickly trust can get destroyed. It's not an optional and it's not an occasional thing. You know, we have to build a rock solid, reliable system of care. But if we do that, if we nail the relationship, we build that trust, now we can do things differently. Maybe the best way to put this is imagine if you were foolhardy enough to take care of some of your family members. Don't advise it, but you already know how they're doing. You already know. You've built up the relationship, I hope, that tells you how they work, what's important to them, you know, their baseline status. So what if every interaction could just build on that? And what if you had that 24-hour-a-day availability, not necessarily one person, but at least the team? Now you can do things like adjust medications on a day-to-day basis that just cannot happen through the office. You can use new devices to help supercharge your ability to pay attention in new ways that you couldn't otherwise do. You know, we can even start to say, hey, maybe we'll just deliver care to your house. You know, have I put stitches in family members in their kitchens? Yes, I have. Why can't we do it for her too? You know, why do we have to limit it just to family members kind of off the record? We, we can, and now we are starting to do just that thing. I mean, it's, a lot of it's the same medicine, but we're applying it in different but really simple ways. And we're seeing some really cool things with that. And in fact, brings me to one of the most important points, which is if this doesn't work, it doesn't work. You know, you have to have results. And to help double check our math to address things like reversion of the mean and disease progression, we brought in an actuarial firm to help us review our numbers and to, to make sure that the performance that we're seeing is actually there. I'm happy to say that, yeah, it is. I'm going to start with one of the numbers that's hardest to fudge, uh, mortality. Now, our patients in our program tend to live anywhere from between 50 to double lifespan. You know, these are sick patients. Many of them don't have long to live. We can double their lifespan in many cases. That's pretty cool. You know, we're not just saying we're stringing them along in a verge of death kind of state. We're giving them active lives back, you know, healthy days at home, if you will. We're able to reduce emergency department and inpatient utilization by about half. That's where money gets spent. But it's not because we you know, show up in the hospital parking lot and say, nope, turn around. It's because we're there in their home before the snowball you know, starts to roll down the hill. This program is not cheap. It takes all those people. They cost money. Even after we load in the cost of this program, we are still able to reduce the cost of taking care of patients like this on average 20 to 30%. Sometimes those numbers admittedly are kind of fuzzy because there's a lot of ways that you can approach it, but there is a definite cost saving and we've had outside verification of that. But importantly, and a number that sometimes doesn't get enough attention is patients are happy and they like it. You know, our satisfaction is well above 90% and the voluntary patient turnover is in the low single digits. That's pretty cool. Not too long ago, I went, my kids and I shot off some model rockets and this is actual footage here. 
I don't know how it happened, but it did. We're learning lessons. We've had, we've learned many painful lessons and we still learned lessons here. One of them is how do we calibrate this care to the patient? And like I said, this is expensive care. Sometimes patients don't want all of this expensive care. Sometimes we can't afford it. Sometimes they don't need it. So how do we personalize this? You know, how do we figure out who can go with a lighter touch, lower intensity version of it? How do we know who needs different types of care? You know, maybe that could be in the home. You know, maybe they're just frail and homebound. Maybe we can just deliver attention to them at the right time. And as we grow, we see more patients. How do we structure this? How do we deliver this at scale? You know, this is a hard cultural challenge here. No easy answers, but very important. Technology obviously plays a huge role here, but as I've hopefully managed to convey, it has to be built on the foundation of the relationship you know, and the patient-provider interaction. Because if you send a bunch of devices to the house, it's a non-starter, you know, and you miss out on the opportunity that actually is there. We have to answer the what and the why to the patient as much as we do ourselves. You know, machine learning is a big thing we spend a lot of time on, but not always for what some people think. You know, we're not trying to build the robo doctor or the brain. Yes, there's a physiology aspect to this, understanding each individual patient, but sometimes it's understanding who to pay attention to and how, you know, within a population. Sometimes it goes into the who should be in the program in the first place. Whatever this is, you cannot build a human brain to do this job. It will not work technically. And even if it did, you can't build technology to replace the human relationship. That won't work. Finally, this is one of the important things that does not get enough attention as well. You have to tell your value story in real dollars. If you don't tell that story, if you don't figure out how this works, somebody else is going to tell it and there's probably going to be zeros in their version of the story. You know, this does work or this can work at least if you do it right. And in that case, the CFO can be your friend. You want to demonstrate what you know works, so why not? And if you can, now you've got opportunity to go after payers, new relationships, employers. Now you can do some really cool things at scale. So, you know, I want to close by saying, I hope that this discussion really quickly turns into table stakes. We all accept it as, as a given. We're not there yet. There's a lot of people approaching this problem in their own individual ways, from their own places, in the way that makes sense to them. And that's great. And I personally am just lucky that I'm able to approach it in such a large and meaningful way. So thank you for your time. Look forward to more questions. So it's enabling all of this ability to do care at home and to virtualize and make impacts in terms of human lives and dollars and beyond is, is some pretty magical technology. At, at our exponential medicine conference, we try and take the lens of you know what's here, what's coming in two, five, and 10 years. And we're in 2020. It's the future. Part of the challenge for the orthopedic and the healthcare community in general is to understand what's available in our tool set and what's coming. And Darren Sabo is one of the leads with Orange, Orange Telecom, which is a very large telecom player, uh, including in the Middle East, Africa, and beyond, and has been forging partnerships to look at how we can start to leverage particularly the 5G technology into the clinic here and in the emerging markets. And so let's get a taste of where 5G is now, what its possibilities are, and how it can take us into the future. Darren. Thank you very much, Daniel. Great to see you again, as always. Hi, everybody. So I work for a global telecommunications company. We're in about 26 countries and we're responsible for 240-ish million customers worldwide. Our main focus is Europe, Africa, and the Middle East. We do not operate a network here in the United States. Just want to 
set that out there. So what am I here to talk about? So what I'm not here to do is sell you on the absolute need for 5G networks. All right, I'll just put that out there. We're still trying to figure out what the best use cases are for 5G, but rather what I want to do is help you understand what 5G means. 5G isn't a specific technology. Rather, it's a series of specifications that help define the standard, which is the fifth generation wireless network. Okay, generally in our industry, technology and standards typically precede market demand and with 5G, there's no difference. We will, over the years to come, we will start to understand the implications of this technology better in a variety of industries and healthcare is no exception. So what is 5G? I said there's a series of specifications that define the standard. There's eight key specifications. I'm only going to talk about four of them right now. I think those are the four most important, especially in the context of healthcare. The four specifications are improvements in bandwidth, right? So everyone understands bandwidth, right? There's going to be a 10x increase in the amount of bandwidth, capping out at about 10 gigabytes per second. In an office context, you could expect to see, well, or a clinical setting, you could expect to see probably about one gigabit per second download speed. In a public or dense urban setting, probably about 200 megabytes per second. That's still about, like I said, a 10x improvement over 4G LTE networks. So that's number one, bandwidth. Number two, Latency, right? Latency is the amount of time it takes for a signal to get from one place to another and then come back. So we're expecting a 10x improvement in latency as well to go down to about one to 10 milliseconds for uh, a signal to make a round trip. So what does that mean, one to 10 milliseconds? So it's commonly accepted that humans can't perceive anything under 20 milliseconds. So this is great in terms of certain technologies that absolutely require very low latency. If you think in terms of AR, VR, or machine-to-machine uh, -machine connectivity, right? So we have bandwidth, latency. The third thing I want to talk about is energy savings. With 5G, there's going to be an energy savings on the network side, so it's supposed to increase network efficiency by about 90%, which is fantastic on our side. But what does this mean for the consumer? The energy savings also translates to IoT devices, Internet of Things, all connected devices. So it's projected that IoT devices, the batteries in IoT devices on 5G networks will last up to 10 years. 10 years. It's huge, especially in a commercial context where you have to replace batteries every couple of months or perhaps even once a year, right? So we have bandwidth improvements, 10x bandwidth improvement, 10x latency improvement, 10-year battery. And the fourth specification I want to talk about is connectivity density. What does connectivity density mean? Or connection density, rather. Uh, connection density is the amount of devices you could put on a network in a unit of space, right? So we're expecting about a 10x improvement in that as well. It's really easy to remember, 10x, 10x, 10x. We're probably going to cap out at about 1 million devices in one square kilometer, which is fantastic. 
especially since IoT is everywhere right now. Everything's going online. Everything's getting connected back to the back to the cloud to provide you with advanced services and artificial intelligence, machine learning, so on and so forth. This has a lot of implications in healthcare as we connect more sensors and there are more devices in a clinical setting connected to the network. You can bypass Wi-Fi networks and go straight to cellular. This is important. And this is a little bit about what was being spoken to earlier, talking about building human-centric technologies, right? How many people have struggled to connect their Wi-Fi router at home? All right? <laughs> All right. What about syncing your devices via Bluetooth? And then the signal drops out, right? We can all understand these pains. 5G is going to enable us to connect those a lot of those devices directly to the network. So out of the box, you turn the thing on, it's already on the network. That's a benefit that everybody can understand, right? It may not be as sexy as uh, a lot of other use cases that are being put out there, but it's very practical, right? And this is something that I want to, I definitely want to focus on. So where is 5G right now in terms of where can you get 5G? Where is it available? It's been launched in South Korea and the United States in 2019. So all major wireless carriers in the United States are currently rolling out 5G networks in one context or another. 5G means something a little differently depending on which network you're talking about. And that's because of the spectrum they're using. I'm not going to get super technical on this. Right. Uh, there are three bands to really think about. There's low band, mid band, and high band. All I want to communicate here is low band, which is where T-Mobile's operating. It's called the sub-6 frequency. With the lower band, you're able to reach further distances. However, the amount of data that that signal can carry is a little lower. Right. So you may not, on a T-Mobile network, and I'm not trying to trash T-Mobile by any means, but on a T-Mobile network, you're going to get a 5G signal that could travel further, so it could reach more suburban, I wouldn't necessarily say rural areas, but they could use their traditional cell towers to deliver those signals. However, with AT&T and Verizon, they're going to be using spectrum more on the high band, or what we call millimeter wave spectrum. So... In the higher spectrum, the wavelengths are shorter, right? So it carries more data, but the signal doesn't go as far. And we're talking about not going miles, but just across the block or maybe a city block, right? So what does this mean for your purposes? This means that there's going to be a need to deploy micro cells. So instead of your cell signal coming from a cell tower that covers a whole city, Right? There's going to be more mini cells, probably about this big, put on different buildings within an urban context or within your clinical setting. Don't worry, it's perfectly safe. But the cell towers or the cell antennas will be more distributed around the environment to get those higher speeds and those higher bandwidth rates. So that's all I really want to put out there. In terms of Europe, we're moving a little slower. We're expecting our first deployments at the end of 2020, probably. 
but we won't really be able to take advantage of 5G networks probably going into 2021 into 2022. So we're a little further back. In a rural context, so if you're talking about emerging markets, which is where I do most of my work, Africa and the Middle East, we're not really talking about 5G networks. We're still trying to get 4G ubiquity in these, in these markets. So South Korea, North America, Europe at the end of this year, into next year, and then emerging countries beyond that. Okay, so now let's talk about how you can use 5G. We started to touch about that a little bit when I was talking about the specifications in terms of member bandwidth, latency, connection density, and power savings. So what does this mean? Let's take a look at the consumer side and then commercial context. So on the consumer side, we're still trying to figure out what we're gonna use 5G for. And just so you know, unless you have a 5G device with a 5G chip in it, you are not able to take advantage of a 5G network, regardless of what your cell phone may say. If it says you're on a 5G network, fantastic. If you don't have a 5G device, you're not gonna see a big improvement there. So on the consumer side, we're looking at probably gaming. Esports is huge. Seriously, we're talking multi, multi tens of billion dollar market. Esports on mobile devices is looked at as one of the early use cases for 5G networks. And this is really what's being focused on in South Korea right now. Uh, United States, esports isn't as big, but it's growing and we can expect to see this. Other entertainment contexts, AR, VR. AR, VR didn't really reach the scale that was being projected a number of years ago, but for those that use AR and VR, the low latency will definitely help improve that experience. AT&T is going to be focusing on entertainment content, so higher resolution video faster, fantastic. Verizon is focusing on something that's really interesting. And this is what we were talking about earlier in terms of fixed wireless. That experience I described earlier in terms of just having a 5G hub in your home and be able to connect to Wi-Fi on that hub, that is called fixed wireless. And they are launching that under the product name 5G Home. So if you see 5G, uh, Verizon's 5G Home, that's what that means. And they're going to be rolling that out little by little. So that's super useful very user-friendly. In a commercial context, again, we're still trying to explore and understand the uh, use cases and where 5G really fits. One area that's being explored by a Scandinavian telco is mining, mining industry. They have lots of sensors. They do 3D imagery. They have drones, which produce very high-resolution video images. So 5G works really well in that context. So in healthcare, what about healthcare? Verizon's announced that they're experimenting in Arkansas with a named commercial provider, and AT&T has been collaborating. This isn't a really interesting collaboration. AT&T announces they're gonna be collaborating with a Rush University Medical Center in Chicago to create a hospital of the future. Probably the best use cases that I've seen come out of this, and they're still building this hospital of the future, it's supposed to be a 11-story outpatient facility, is untethering devices in the clinical setting. Right. 
again, this isn't super sexy, but in terms of when it comes to upgrading the networks for their aging facilities, instead of rerunning wires everywhere through the walls, through the ceilings, they're able to just deploy those microcells that we were talking about. And then they can upgrade their networks wirelessly. And the new facility that they're creating, so they've said this is probably going to save a, in the multiple millions of dollars when it comes to upgrading their network. In terms of the new facility that they're building, it's going to be purpose designed around 5G and advanced technologies. So we'll see, we'll have to see what sorts of new services will be enabled by this technology. But getting rid of the wires is a fantastic use case. And in terms of the connection density, we're now able to put more sensors online. So blood pressure cuffs, wearable devices, monitoring devices for both the physicians, the care providers, and the patients. Right? You can reach a much higher connection density in this context. This is also important in the context of utilizing AI and machine learning because AI and ML algorithms rely on lots of data, lots and lots of data. And to be really useful, you want to provide that data to those algorithms in real time. 5G can definitely help with that as well. So in closing, I just want to leave you not with answers in terms of exactly what 5G is going to do for you in the healthcare industry, but rather, hopefully, you've learned a little bit about the specifications that define 5G networks. So you could start to put that in the context of how it can help you day to day in the healthcare setting. And I think we're gonna talk a little bit about that on the panel in just a few moments. Thanks, Darren. So we've got about 10 minutes to sort of discuss some of these implications and also um, open up to the app from everybody here. I'll start with, you know, Chris, I mean, we're moving into the sort of hybridized model, blending, you know, inpatient care to outpatient. You're sort of pioneering that work. What are some of the key lessons in terms of execution to make that happen that have worked, not worked? And um, if someone was to try to take that into the healthcare systems that are represented in the room, that might be some takeaways. This is hard stuff. It's kind of funny. San Francisco is probably one of the worst places to, to think about the patients and the need that's actually out there. You know, this is as technologically, well, in some ways, as, as advanced as it gets. And our patients are you know, on the farm, in suburbia, in places that don't look like this. We have to recognize that the, the patients that we need to take care of are not in this room right now. They have different needs, they have different abilities, and they have different understandings. And as we do this, this is fundamentally, again, a human problem. We cannot device our way out of some of these challenges. Devices can be a wonderful aid. You know, it can boost our abilities. It can give us insights that we've never had before. But if we don't get the the human factors, you know, we explain the why, address the usability and get the patients in on it, make them understand or help them, I should say, understand it's not going to work. It has to be done at scale. You know, again, you lose their trust, you lose their confidence and you're going to get nowhere. Is there sort of almost a specific set if you want to set this up in a new community or, or, or home that you've learned to you know, when you want to sort of drop this all off, as you mentioned, 5G is coming where you can just plug and play, but are there some sort of barriers to adoption that are sort of 
surprised you, whether it's physician behavior incentives or things you needed to learn specifically for certain patient populations? Yeah, a couple things come to mind. Number one, we're not trying to displace any parts of the existing healthcare system. You know, we supplement, we add on, we enhance everything right now, or traditionally, I should say, the healthcare experience has been something that happens in an appointment or in an admission somewhere. And then there's a whole bunch of other time in between. We're trying to fill in those gaps rather than knock somebody out. We're not threatening a primary care provider. We're not displacing the role of the specialist. We're augmenting them. You know, and we're we're sharing the load and giving them abilities to basically help manage their patients. So if we go in and we partner and we say, hey, how can we do this together and collaborate? Yeah, that's where it works. We've gone into situations where the providers, individuals haven't been so welcoming and that's caused friction. It's taken a while to overcome that. But this is a team sport. There's no ways around that. And we cannot come in with a, a virtual solution that suddenly one-ups the system because the system will kick back. You know, so it has to be a team. So, Darren, there's obviously a lot of hope and hype around 5G. We mentioned or mm-hmm. we've heard about, you know, in China trying to do surgery over this, which may not be the best <laughs> application. But for the surgeons in the room, staying home in your pajamas and doing your procedures <laughs> may be a distant view. But all these things come with potential risk as well. So, I've been, the question I get is 5G and all these connected devices have any health risks? You said briefly no. And then what about the security risks, given that now everyone's digitome is going to be collectible through these as well? Does 5G have a security issue? Okay, so in terms of health risks, best we can tell, because 5G is going to be take advantage of the millimeter wave spectrum, based on what I've read, the signal won't be able to penetrate the skin more than a half a millimeter to a millimeter, so you would know better than I what <laughs> the implications are on someone's health, but it's supposed to be negligible, if any. In terms of the lower end of the spectrum, these radio waves are already out there. And the 5G network is just going to be built on top of radio waves that are already in your environment. In terms of security risks, it's actually supposed to provide a more secure network. Again, because uh, one big reason, I want to get into the technical side of cybersecurity, but an easy to understand reason is just you could cut out these routers and a lot of middlemen in terms of transmitting the data from the sensor or from the user to the cloud and then back to the user. So every time you're going through another router or another step or another middleman, there's an opportunity for man-in-the-middle attacks or uh, other cybersecurity risks. So if the data is going straight from the sensor to to your uh, telecommunications provider and then back, just inherently, it's going to be a more secure network. Got it. So for both of you, I guess, you know, Chris and I, we have uh, from the home, we can have everything from something as simple as a Fitbit, which Stefano showed a study last year. You can track an orthopedic surgeon, a patient after a hip surgery and see how they're doing all the way now to ambient technologies, camera, AI-based facial recognition to telling if someone's upright or how to fall. We have the advent of you know, Siri and Alexa. Where's sort of the blend now of taking some of these new signals making the data actionable information and, and hybridizing that with the sort of asynchronous and continual care from the hospital to the home. 
gets into a couple issues that I can think of right now. One of them is the it's basically part of the the human experience, which is we're not always so great to know what we ourselves need. There's a reason we have coaches. There's a reason we have financial advisors. There's a reason I'd be an idiot if I managed my own healthcare. You know, we need that outside perspective. And to some extent, it's the challenge that we have with Fitbits and you know self managed devices that you don't have the outside validation, verification, and perspective. So the devices are great or can be great, I should say, if they have a context, if there's a reason that you have them. You know, the, the G whiz factor wears off pretty quickly. And a lot of people know that some devices are measured in, you know, time from the wrist to time in the dresser drawer. Um, two months, maybe, you know, you, you just get over it. But if it's tied into a reason in a context and a meaning and a benefit, especially now we're starting to see something, you know, it's one thing to say, walk more steps. It's another thing to say, hey, you breathe better that day. You know, and you were able to actually walk down the driveway to get your mail, which for some patients is, is actually a major achievement. So long way of saying that there has to be a context. You know, you can't just throw a device at a problem and not address the human factors and not internalize the reason for using it. A lot of those human factors are sometimes even generationally dependent. Gen X or Gen Y versus baby boomer are the ways you've had to hybridize or modify the offerings, including to the clinician who may be a, a digital native or not to utilize these? I don't know. I might kick back a little bit. The, I guess, thought of the old person is, you know, technology and I'm scared is I'm not going to say a myth, but I think is, is far overblown. We have adoption in some of the older crowd. And when I say older, I mean like 90 plus crowd as much as do the younger ones. Um, I think it's individual. There's probably a slower uptake. So there's a little bit of assistance required, but man, you would be surprised because it's not the technology. I, I think it is fair to say that the older crowd may not appreciate the G whiz factor that, uh, you know, something like I would. But once they understand what it does for them, which is giving that connection, helps manage their health, helps look at photos of the grandkids. I, I'm, I'm being serious with this. I mean, we see uptake and we see interest just as much with the older crowd as we do the younger ones. So in that sense, yeah, there's, we have to make it easy. You know, we can't make it complicated. We can't overload them with details, but technology in and of itself hasn't been that hard of a sell. You'd be surprised. And a lot of the, these lessons are being leapfrogged from some emerging markets. So, Darren, you work a lot in Africa where you mentioned still 4G or 3G, but a lot has been done there that's come here. Are there some, I guess, are two questions. Um, mm -hmm. One, I love the issue of sort of, you know, direct to network and the untethering. Still pretends the issue of, you know, battery life. We still, whether you can prove battery life or not, but that's still the key piece. But what lessons might you have seen from other markets converging with 5G that are enabling sort of care anywhere that might be useful for everyone here to know about and, and what planning might people here need to know about to integrate this into their future care pathways? Like I said, 5G is still rolling out. So we're still trying to figure out how we're going to fully utilize it and what the context is in different markets. So something I'm very hopeful for in an emerging market context isn't so much uh, remote surgery. But I saw a really interesting use case regarding genome sequencing and genome screening for diseases uh, in DRC and a lot of parts of West Africa. You know, Ebola is a big issue and there's a lot of infectious diseases and it really cuts short lifespans. The ability to do more advanced screening for infectious diseases out in the field and uh, communicate that data back to the cloud 
that would be a really big game changer for uh, a lot of these regions. In emerging market contexts, the big issues are really cold chain storage, vaccine delivery, things of that nature. I don't see... It's more like there might be lessons that from the emerging markets we can apply to, to here in the U.S. Lessons from the emerging markets that we can apply here. I would that we're getting say, untethered, right? The fact that you don't, I mean, a lot of the lessons in how clinical care is. Yeah. So the lesson, the, the lessons in healthcare, probably the same lessons we're learning in financial inclusion and energy access in terms of we can leapfrog technologies. We don't have to follow the traditional path of traditional infrastructure in terms of if you're, if you're building a new facility, you go straight to wireless. Like what's the need to go via copper or to install, to spend all the money to install fiber connections? With the new technologies, you can leapfrog all that. And we're seeing, we're definitely seeing that in emerging countries in a variety of industries. So the, the ability to think non-traditionally and jump straight to the future is something we could definitely learn from emerging countries. Exactly. A uh, question coming in for Chris. Uh, what metric, real or impossible, would you like to observe or sense in your patient population that you can't currently access? Oh, that's a good question. I'm going to give you two answers there. One, a, a physiologically plausible marker, and then one that's just completely made up. The, the physiologically plausible answer would be basically a, a general measure of physiologic stress. And to some extent, this exists with permutations on heart rate variability. It is uh, People are still learning about this and trying to figure out how this makes sense. But the cliche would be the check engine light. Because again, this is it's not so much sometimes the issue of what's going on. We just need to figure out with a gazillion people who needs our attention, you know, because most people don't at any given time. But if they just point them out to us, now we can figure out what needs to be done in the moment. Um, the completely made up answer that I'm going to give is a kind of a the behavioral health equivalent of that or the analog, a panic index if you will, because everybody knows the patient that has had a condition for the longest time and has had a follow-up appointment scheduled four months later, and the night before, it can't wait any longer. You know, because people ruminate on things, and that's just how we react. Um, there is, it's hard sometimes to know the patient's self-perceived uh, symptomatology versus how they're processing and how they're experiencing it. And man, that would that would be awesome if we could find a way to, I guess, measure or at least assess those things in parallel to understand, you know, when an issue is truly developing and when it's uh, an opportunity to to help somebody take a different look at what's going on, maybe something that's not that bad physiologic. I think what's going to get interesting in this new age is we're going to tune and personalize those check engine lights. We're going to be collecting data as we're starting to do. And, you know, we haven't had digital exhaust available and at least a decade ago. And now we have projects like Baseline from Google and the All of Us trial from the NIH, which will start to make some of this useful. And almost I like to use the, you know, the Google Maps or Waze analogy. So we'll be tuning all this and, and sharing our learning as we go in real yeah. time. Exactly. If everybody could go to the doctor every day or have all kinds of attention every day, we'd be in a whole different place, but we can't. So if you can bring the patient to me, uh, I could probably at least get a, a decent idea of what's going on, at least how they're doing. It's who I don't see and who I don't know about. That's the challenge. And that's where the sensors I think will, will be useful. Well, I want to thank uh, Chris and Darren. We're out of time. And hopefully you can take some of these lessons to execute and build sort of these increasingly possible and powerful ways of democratizing and taking healthcare out of the four walls of the clinic. So thanks. Thank you. Everybody. 
We hope you enjoyed this episode of season three of the Digital Orthopedics Podcast and that you heard something that will trigger your curiosity and advance your digital journey. Many of the examples we bring you are outside of orthopedics, but the technologies and solutions we present are all eminently translatable to musculoskeletal care. Please consider giving us a review on your podcast platform so other people can find us. More importantly, tell a friend about our amazing community. We look forward to sharing the next episode with you. I am your host, Stefano Bini, founder and chair of both the Digital Orthopedics Conference San Francisco and this, the Digital Orthopedics Podcast.